Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So, uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Romans 11, 1 through 10. As we continue through this book, one passage at a time. I was having a conversation with a neighbor of mine um, the other day, and he was uh, kind of reflecting on just uh, events going on in our world and our nation, and he just kind of uh, expressed to me, he said something like, you know, I just kind of wish the world was more like it was when I was growing up. And maybe not all of you share that perspective, but... uh, I, I know that many people do, that many people look at our world and they're concerned about the direction in which the world is headed. It just seems like things are spiraling downward in a lot of ways. It seems like things that used to be right are now called wrong. Things that used to be known as wrong are now called right. The Pew Research Center is always doing these surveys and polls and Last year they did a poll on um, who people identify with, religiously, spiritually speaking, and found that the number of Christians in the United States anyway is going down, the number of atheists is going up, or the number of people who call themselves nuns, maybe you've heard about that, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns, that is they have no religious affiliation whatsoever, that number is increasing. We look throughout the world and we see a number of alarming developments. Maybe you've heard about what's going on in China where the government is going throughout the country and removing crosses from the tops of church buildings and heaping them up in junkyard kind of piles. And We all know about ISIS and their movement in the Middle East. And Some of you might have heard about the city called Mosul that is one of the most ancient Christian cities. There's always been a Christian population there for 2,000 years since the time of the apostles, but that city has now been overtaken um, by this militant Muslim group. And we see all these things going on, we see all these changes happening, and some of you might be asking, is God really at work in this world or not? Is the kingdom of God going forward Or is it going in retreat? Is God at work in our time? That's a question that is on a lot of people's minds. And if we even think of this from a local perspective, we can see things just in our own backyard. The statistics that we have shared with you very often is that something like 80% of people in Delaware County do not identify with any kind of church or religious institution. About 80% in relatively conservative central Indiana. I mean, even we look at New Life, our congregation here, you know, I don't think it's any secret that we don't have as many people worshiping here as we used to, as four or five years ago. There are people who have left this church and have turned from the faith. There were ministries that were once thriving that aren't thriving so much anymore. And so we look at all these developments, and some of us are asking this question. Is God at work or not? 
Is it worth the effort, really, to give ourselves to these kingdom-oriented tasks? Is it worth it to witness to our neighbor? Is it worth it to devote Mondays of your summer to kids in the meadow to serve our community and serve our children? Or are we just spinning our wheels? Is everything going backwards? Or are we going forward? That's what we're going to talk about today. Because this is something similar to the question that Paul is asking here in Romans chapter 11. You might recall as we've been going through these last couple of chapters that the question that Paul has been dealing with is why is it that the Jews have been rejecting the gospel? When the Jews have always been God's people, they're the ones who have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so Paul is perplexed with this in chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's what he is dealing with. And you'll see it the start of chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's a huge question. What Paul is saying is, is God at work anymore? Has, has all of God's promises to his people failed? Have God's covenantal commitment to his people come unraveled? Is God AWOL now? Is he finished? Is he done? That's the question that Paul is asking here. And the question that he sets out to answer in chapter 11. And we'll see here in verse 1 that Paul gives a very clear answer. By no means. By no means is God finished. God is at work behind the scenes, on the battlegrounds of human hearts, in the secret places where the world takes no notice, God is at work, God is on the move, God is doing great things. And that's what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 11. So let's stand, and we're going to hear from these first 10 verses of chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself... I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is my grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. O oh Lord, we ask, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Is God at work in our time? The answer is yes. 
And what we see in this passage is two particular ways, just two particular ways that God is at work. And the first is this. God is at work through the hardening of the non-elect. Okay, let me explain what that means. I'm going to start with the second half of this passage, starting in verse 7. God is at work, and one of the ways that he continues his redemptive work is through an act of hardening. So, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What does Paul have in mind here? We have to go back to chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, to know what Paul is referring to here. So here's what Paul says. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So when Paul says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, what he's saying is that Israel wanted a right standing with God. But their problem was is that they sought that right standing by way of achieving that righteousness on their own rather than receiving that righteousness through Christ and through faith. They wanted to do it their own way. They didn't want to do it God's way. And so what Paul is saying in verse 7 is Israel did not achieve that status of righteousness. But, he says, the elect obtained it. And so what Paul is setting up here is two different groups. And one of, this, one of these groups is the elect. The elect obtained this righteousness because the elect are the ones who have placed faith in Jesus and through faith alone have received from Jesus the righteousness that can only come from him. That's the status of the elect. Now, we've talked at length about the elect and about election as we were going through chapter 9. I'm not going to go into much detail on that today. If you want to hear uh, more about that, you can go to our website and hear those, those messages. Um, but the elect in Paul's mind here are those that God has chosen by grace from before the foundation of the world. And they're the ones who have obtained this righteousness. But now look at the rest of verse 7. <clears throat> Paul says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The rest, that is, the non-elect, those that God has not chosen by grace to save. What God has done is he's hardened those people. And then what he does is he explains this a little bit with some references to some Old Testament, Old Testament passages in verse 8. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 29.14 and Isaiah 29, both of these, and he kind of conflates them into one passage here. And he says in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So Paul is saying, using the Old Testament in reference to Israel, that because of their unbelief and their disobedience and their rebellion against God, God responded to that by sending to them a spirit of blindness, spiritual blindness, so they couldn't behold the truth about God. God hardened them. And then in verse 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul quotes from Psalm 69. Says David says this, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. 
Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And again, what Paul is doing is using this passage to say the Jews did not believe. They didn't trust God. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. And in their rebellion, they kind of became trapped in their unbelief. So they couldn't get loose from it. And God responded to that in a retributive way. He punished them by giving them eyes that were darkened so that they couldn't see and bend their backs forever. That's kind of hard to interpret. It just seems like it's a reference to somebody carrying a heavy load forever and they can't get out from under it. They're trapped. And so what Paul is saying here is that this is what God has done in the world is that he is hardening those who have turned from him and refused to accept Christ. It's a startling thing, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable thing to hear. It's a troubling thing that one of the ways that God is at work is in hardening people's hearts. What does this look like? I remember a friend I had in college on my dorm floor at Palmer Hall in Studebaker Complex at Ball State University, and he knew that I was a Christian, and we were getting into some discussions about this topic, and I remember this guy saying to me, you know, you can believe that if you want, and I certainly don't have any objection to people being Christians, but I just can't see devoting my life to something like that. I just can't see it, he said. I can't see how someone could devote their life. I mean, my response inside was, how could you not devote your life to something like that? We're talking about the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator of all living things who has sent his son to die on a cross to redeem sinners, that we've been called to live for his glory and his glory alone, how in the world can somebody not want to devote his or her life to that? But this guy couldn't see that. It just seemed irrelevant to him. And this is one of the ways that people's hearts are hardened. They think about the afterlife, it just doesn't bother them. Heaven, hell, those are matters that are of no concern to me. They think about the Bible, and they're just totally bored with God's revelation on the pages of Scripture. When it comes to issues of morality and sin, it's all relative to them, and what's good in their minds is just as good as what's good in somebody else's mind. Sin bears no threat to them. They're blinded to that. Their hearts are hardened. We see this in a number of places in Scripture. This is not the only place where it comes up. One of the most famous examples is the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Remember, Moses and Aaron were chosen by God to go to Pharaoh and to plead with Pharaoh to free the people of Israel and release them. And God enabled Moses and Aaron to perform a number of miracles in Pharaoh's midst so that he might be convinced that Moses was actually from God. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. With each time he rejected the miracles that he was seeing, his heart just got a little bit harder. We have another example in the Gospel of John, chapter 
12, very similar. Jesus had performed repeated miracles in front of the people as a way of showing that he indeed was the Messiah. But people rejected him. They didn't believe. And so John 12 says this, Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Hardening of the heart. This is something that can happen. This is a reality. This is one of the ways that God is at work. Now, let, let me clarify here to make sure that we're not getting the wrong idea. This hardening is an act of retribution on God's part. You see that word in verse 9, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Don't get the idea that what is being taught here is, here's how some people think about it. They think of people wanting to come to Jesus, wanting to believe in Jesus, pleading with God to be saved, and yet God's saying, no, sorry, you're not one of the elect. I'm going to harden you and push you away. Sometimes that's the way people conceive of this teaching, and that is not what the Bible is presenting to us. That is not the biblical picture. God doesn't take good people willing to believe in him and change their hearts so that they won't believe in him. That, that's not the idea. What the Bible tells us is that we're born into this world with hearts that naturally don't believe and that naturally are in rebellion against him, that naturally resist him every step of the way. And what this teaching is telling us is that God comes into the world, he elects some for himself by changing their hearts so that they will believe in him, and the rest he just passes over and allows them to continue in their freely chosen rebellion and unbelief. God's not making them disbelieve, he's just letting them continue to disbelieve as they freely want to do. So it's important to understand this, to not get the wrong picture in your head. God is not a sadistic deity turning away people who want to come to him. Jesus has said, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. If you're feeling in your heart the stirring of wanting to come to Jesus, and you're thinking, I'm going to go to him and ask for forgiveness, I guarantee you he will receive that plea and answer your prayer, and your sins will be forgiven, and you will belong to him forever. Don't let this be a discouragement, like, I'm not sure if I should go to Jesus or not because he might harden my heart if I do. No, if you want to go to Jesus, that means your heart is soft right now. So go forward with that and receive what the gospel has to offer you. Sometimes we get this picture of, of God. I think there's a picture that's been presented to us of God like he's this almost like he's this kind of teenage boy who's trying to find a date for the prom. You know, and he's asking all these girls, and these girls kept, keep rejecting him. And, and there's poor God who's standing in the corner all alone. Poor God, nobody will believe in him. If only people would accept his offer. There's God, he can't do anything about it except sit there and wait for people to come to him. That's the picture sometimes people have of God, of this emaciated, weak deity. And that is not 
the God of the Bible. God is in charge. He is at work. He is carrying forth his purposes exactly as he intended. And when people reject him and spurn him, God, in some cases, responds with hardening. Here's how our confession puts it. I think in a glorious way. The rest of mankind, the non-elect, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. I know that's a hard, that's a hard doctrine, sometimes called the doctrine of reprobation. But I think it's clearly what Paul is teaching us here in verse 7, 8, and 9 of Romans 11. The warning for us is simply this, friends. If, if you are in your life right now and you've been lately contemplating turning from God in some way, you, you've been playing with some kind of sin that you are about to indulge in, that you're laying out a plan to do something that you know is disobedient to God and displeasing to Him. I want to offer you a warning here, friends, because all of the decisions that you make in your life and that I make in my life, they have an effect on our hearts. And as we choose to walk away from God, there is a hardening that takes place because all of our choices affect our hearts. The inmost being of ourselves is changed as a result of the things that we choose to do and choose not to do. C.S. Lewis said it like this, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you into something a little different than it was before. All your life long, you're slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Hardening is a very real phenomenon in the work of God, and this is one of the ways that he is at work through the hardening of the non-elect. But there's another way that God is at work, and it is through the saving of the elect. The saving of the elect. Remember the question. Question is, has God rejected Israel? And so Romans 11 is going to go through that in some detail. And so we're going to have to unpack this over the next few weeks. It's a very difficult chapter, but we'll be exploring this question. Does Israel have a future in God's redemptive plan? Is Israel going to come to faith in Jesus? And that's what Paul deals with. But again, Paul's answer here in verse 1 is by no means. No, God has not rejected Israel. And then he gives two examples of why this is so. First of all, he gives a personal example in verse 1. Here's one reason why I know God has not rejected Israel. For I myself am an Israelite. I'm a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What he's saying is, I'm a Christian and I'm a Jew. I came to faith in Christ. If I came to faith in Christ, then God must not be done with Israel because... I'm from the tribe of Benjamin and a descendant of Abraham. And here I am, in the flesh, a Christian. And he goes on and he says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
So he brings in this doctrine of foreknowledge. Notice here that it's a people that God foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. See, many people think of foreknowledge when we think of the doctrine of election. People think of foreknowledge as if God chooses based on what he knows people are going to do. We've taken some time to dispel that notion. And I think this verse helps dispel that notion. And this is not foreknowledge of things that, will people, that people will do. It's a foreknowledge of a people. It's a foreloving. It's a forerelationship that God has with his elect that the Father has given to Jesus to save from before the foundation of the world. So, there's this personal reason. No, God has not rejected his people because Paul says, I'm an example of someone who's become a Christian. But then he also gives a biblical example in verses 2 through 4. He refers to Elijah from the book of 1 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. And he says at the end of verse 2 there, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Now, do you remember the story of Elijah? Here's what Paul has in mind. It was that story where there was this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that? Where they both came together and they decided to have kind of a contest to see whose God was real. And they built these altars. And the prophets of Baal built their altar. And they danced around the altar and they called out to their God and they cried out to him to respond. And it says, nobody answered and then it was Elijah's turn, and he built an altar himself. And just to make things a little more interesting, he got a bunch of water and poured it on the altar to make it more difficult to burn. And then Elijah called out to his God, and fire came out of heaven and burned up the altar. And everybody there in the presence said, the Lord, he is God. There's one true God, and now we know who he is. And they all exclaim this in Elijah's presence. And it was a wonderful spiritual victory for Elijah. But what happened in response? Remember Ahab and Jezebel, wicked, evil leaders in the nation at the time. They come out and they threaten Elijah. They threaten his life. And so Elijah falls into discouragement. And he becomes overwhelmed with this complaint. And so that's what Paul quotes here in verse 3. He's quoting Elijah. And here's what Elijah says. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Here's what Elijah is saying. I'm the only one left here who really believes in the true God. I'm the only one who's doing the Lord's work. I'm the only one who really has a passion for righteousness and doing the right thing. There's nobody else. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're the only one in your workplace. You're the only one in your family who really believes in Jesus, who really is trying to do the Lord's work. A lot of people in our nation are feeling that way as the church gets increasingly marginalized. We're feeling like we're the only ones. We feel like we're in such a minority, and that's the way Elijah felt. Overwhelmed with discouragement, and I wonder if he was wondering, oh Lord, are you really at work in this or not? And here is how God responds. 
verse 4. What is God's reply? He says, Elijah, let me tell you something. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What God is saying here is, Elijah, I am at work in ways that would blow your mind. I am at work in ways that are beyond your wildest expectation. You think you're the only one? I've got 7,000 people over here who are bowing their knee to me and not to the false gods of this world. Elijah, I am at work. I am doing great things. Don't be discouraged. Get up and let's go. What an encouraging thing for God to say to a discouraged servant of God. And he goes on and he explains, verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That there, there's, there's a remnant. What he's saying is that within the broader nation of Israel, which was mostly an apostate, unbelieving nation, there is within this nation a remnant. A, a, a little bit here that's left over. Have you ever gone into a carpet store? Have you ever seen carpet remnants? You know, people lay down carpet. They normally order more than fits the room, and then there's a little bit left over, and then they sell the remnants. That's really the same idea here. A remnant is just something that's left over. And what Paul is saying is there's a remnant. There's a people who are left over after all these others have been rejecting God and rebelling against him. There's a remnant. But look, it's not a remnant of good people. It's not a remnant of these people who, apart from everybody else, are morally upright and good. No, it's a remnant chosen by grace, by grace alone. It's a remnant that God has preserved for himself. He's preserved these people not because they're good, upright, moral, church-going people, but because he's a gracious God who takes wicked people and brings them to himself and then chooses to use them for glorious kingdom purposes. A remnant chosen by grace. And there's this wonderful then description of grace here in verse 6. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is why election is so important. This doctrine of election, this doctrine of God choosing people from before the foundation of the world. It guards the purity of grace. It preserves the gospel of grace so that you and I can take no credit for it and all the glory can go to God. And this is the point that Paul is making here. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. They don't mix. They're like oil and vinegar. They don't go together. They have to be separated. It'd be the same as saying um, if somebody offers you a, a free vacation, you'd say if the vacation is free of charge, it is no longer going to cost me anything. Otherwise, free of charge would no longer be free of charge. It's just that simple. And salvation is free to any who would receive it. And that's the point that is making here, that Paul is making here about grace. Here's the bottom line. What Paul is trying to show us here is that in the darkest of times, when things seem like they are unraveling, when it just appears that there is no future and no hope, when you start wondering whether God is at work or not, what Paul is saying is you would be blown away. You would be so surprised to know the things that he's doing. 
in the hearts of the people you're ministering to, in our community, in our world, in our nation. Don't be deceived by appearances, brothers and sisters. God is always doing something bigger and better than you would ever imagine or expect. John Calvin said this, let the truth remain fixed in our hearts that the church, which may not appear as anything in our sight, is nourished by the secret providence of God. For God has a way accessible to himself, but concealed from us, by which he wonderfully preserves his elect, even when all seems lost. What an encouraged message, encouraging message this is from Calvin and from Paul. God is at work when we least expect it. Let me give you an example of that as we close. I told you last week, I'm reading this book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, and I finished it, and it's very good. I recommend it to you. And uh, just to give you some background, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Christopher Hitchens uh, was uh, just committed, <coughs> committed atheist, denier of God, took every opportunity he had um, to speak against the Christian faith, traveled around, wrote books, was a hero of atheists all over the world. And um, the book is about the way Hitchens, near the end of his life, was befriended by a number of evangelical Christians. He was diagnosed with cancer, and in the last year, or year and a half of his life, uh, spent time with a lot of Christians, and in particular, this guy named Larry Taunton. And Larry Taunton is the guy who wrote this book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. And so Taunton is telling the story of his relationship with Hitchens, and he, he tells the story of how they went on a couple of road trips together, traveling to do debates, and Taunton managed to talk Hitchens into going through a study of the book of John. And so he describes how they're in the car, and Taunton is driving, and here's Christopher Hitchens, the most notorious atheist in the world, with a Bible on his lap, reading out loud from the book of John. And Taunton is listening, asking him questions, leading him through it. And Hitchens gets to John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? Jesus says this to Martha. Do you believe this? And, and Hitchens is reading this. And after he reads that, he turns to Larry Taunton. He says, do you believe this, Larry Taunton? And Taunton says there was definitely sarcasm in his voice. And Taunton said, y you know that I believe that. But the question is, do you believe that? Christopher Hitchens. And Hitchens says, I'll admit it is not without appeal to a dying man. Now, I can't think of anyone who appeared to be more hardened against the gospel and Jesus and God than Christopher Hitchens. And here was a man whose heart was softening. Now, I'm not telling you that Hitchens became a Christian, you can read the book and uh, give me your assessment of that. But there's no question that God 
was at work in his life. God is at work in the most unexpected places. So friends, it is worth it to persevere, to keep going. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's worth it to keep teaching Sunday school. It's worth it to keep supporting these missionaries. It's worth it to keep talking to your neighbor about the gospel. It's worth it to go out on Monday nights at Morrow's Meadow with kids in the meadow and teach the scriptures and the gospel to children. It's worth it because God is at work and he will never stop working until all of his elect are gathered in and his kingdom is perfected upon his return. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that uh, your word speaks wisdom and truth to us. Oh, Lord God, would you protect us from hardened hearts and encourage us as we continue to do the work of your kingdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.